0: This is a podcast from the October 15, 2007 Faculty Summit on Intercollegiate Athletics, hosted by the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the morning session relating to faculty academic integrity and athletics. The length of the podcast is approximately 1 hour and 13 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. Faculty Academic Integrity and Athletics. As the NCAA has raised academic standards for athletes and teams, faculty and observers alike fear that athletes will be steered into classes and degree programs designed to keep them eligible with minimum effort required. How can faculties track courses and degrees to ensure academic rigor? How should colleges address the fact that athletes are being clustered in certain courses or degree programs? How should academic advisors for athletes work with faculty members and other academic advisors to ensure that athletes are enrolled in appropriate courses and majors? This session is moderated by Dr. Jack DeJoya. President of Georgetown University.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to our panel on faculty, academic integrity, and athletics. With this panel, we continue the conversation that we began this morning. I wish to begin by again expressing gratitude to the Knight Commission for hosting this event and allowing us the opportunity to address such important and timely topics. I'm first going to introduce the members of our panel and then I'll in a sequential order, I'll ask each one of them a question to offer them an opportunity to, to provide their perspectives on the issues of our, our conversation today. And then once we've had an opportunity to hear from each one of our panelists, we'll open it up to the commission members and also to all of the members here who are attending this event. Um, Let me just mention that we would ask that all of you hold your comments and questions until after the panelists have made their opening remarks. We are expecting to have at least 45 minutes for discussion today. You should also know that this session is being recorded and an edited podcast of it will be available at the Knight Commission website in just a few days. When we get to the question and answer period, I'd ask you to hold your question until I recognize you and until a microphone is in your hand. So first, let me introduce the panel. Um, I'll just go right down this row. First, Dr. Mark Becker is Executive Vice President and Provost of the University of South Carolina. He was formerly Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Michigan School of Health, of Public Health. Uh, Professor Doris Corbett is the Department Chair for Health Human Performance and Leisure Studies at Howard University. She has served as both the President of the American Alliance for Health, Physical Education, Recreation and Dance, as well as the President of the International Council for Health, Physical Education, Recreation, Sport and Dance. Alan Hauser is the President-Elect of the Faculty Athletics Representatives Association. He's Professor of Biblical Studies at Appalachian State University and serves as the university's faculty athletics representative. He has also served on the NCAA baseball academic enhancement working group and is a member of the new Division I men's basketball academic enhancement working group. Phil Hughes is the president of the National Association for Academic Advisors for Athletics and Associate Director of Athletics for Student Services at Kansas State University. He has previously served as an Associate and Assistant Director of Athletics at the University of Michigan and Tulane University, and Carol Stern is a Professor of Performance Studies at Northwestern University and is former Chair and current Consultant to the American Association of University Professors Committee on Teaching, Research, and Publication. In anticipation of our our meeting today, we had asked our, our, our panelists to think through some of the questions that emerged from the work uh, that we heard, of, heard from earlier this morning from the survey of faculty from the University of Michigan uh, study. And building from the presentation and the conversation that we had this morning, I'd like to ask each of our panelists a question to get us started this morning. So let me first begin with Dr. Becker. Uh, Dr. Becker, you've held positions at three exceptional research universities, each of which in addition to their international reputations for academic excellence have long and storied histories in intercollegiate athletics from from that perspective what emerged for you as you heard the presentation and the conversation that we had this morning what kinds of of issues do you think define this moment for us from the perspective in which you've you've been engaged in intercollegiate life over the course of your career
2: okay well taking that question, taking the survey results, and actually um, filtering in some of the conversation we heard in the last session, um, what I want to start with is one of the points that we heard in the survey results, even though this is the session on integrity, integrity wasn't seen as a big issue, a- academic integrity, um, in the eyes of the faculty members in the survey, they, they didn't have particular integrity issues. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have uh, important oversight issues that need to be addressed, and. I think it's very important that our faculty senates have athletic subcommittees, that our faculty athletics representatives be true faculty members, um, coming from the faculty, not being a um, career administrator or co- um, career staff, um, and that the general faculty um, participate both through their faculty senates as well as at the individual level uh, in supporting the academic enterprise. Um, I think the universities, the academic communities, and the athletic programs actually share an interest in. The student athlete or the athlete student um, as we heard this morning uh, we all want these young people to be successful when they come to our institutions we want them to be successful in the classroom as well as in competition Uh, what i would say is in the individual faculty member world is that we need the individual faculty member to participate in that student's experience we heard a very um, good question from a colleague at virginia tech this morning about the role statement about the role she's played with the individual student-athletes she's taught. Uh, What I want to do is actually take you back, um, President DeGoya, before my research career is actually I did my graduate studies at Penn State. And at Penn State, and it was talked about this morning about the role of Joe Paterno there, um, that was my first experience where you'd get the little card in the mailbox. You have a student-athlete in your class, and I would get these little cards every week or every other week, and how is this young person doing? And one week I checked the box. that. Um, corresponded to student is passing but could do better. About 24 hours later, I had a telephone call from the Director of Academic Athletics asking me why I checked that box, what was this about, and explained to him that the young man uh, was passing the course with a C, but uh, based on the interactions I was having with him in my classes as as a graduate teaching assistantship, I thought he was capable of more and make it a short story, he ended up with a B in the course because the athletic department made sure that he actually worked from that day forward. They actually um, applied some pressure for the tutoring. Uh, And it worked. Now, I want to fast forward that to a conversation I had not too long ago with a faculty member and talking about the role of the individual faculty member. And and this individual asked me some of the questions that are um, in this um, program about the integrity issues and how do we deal with that. And they said, well, as a faculty member, do you get these cards and do you um, fill them out and send them back? And what sort of response do you get? And his answer was, I just throw them out. Uh, he didn't think that this uh, that these students deserved any treatment any different than any other student, and we had a subsequent long conversation to um, try to change his mind. Uh, what I would like to do in wrapping up my few minutes here before we uh, move on, is there was a question put to us um, how should, college, how should colleges address the fact that athletes are being clustered with clustered in quotes in certain courses or degree programs? And I think the panel at the last session got dangerously close to asking the question that was asked in the New York Times within the last two or three years. And that is, should there be a major? Should athletics actually be a major? And um, the article in the Times at that point stated it and I'll state it again. We allow people to major in dance. We allow people to major in music. We allow people to get PhDs in musical performance. We allow people to get um, degrees in journalism from a professional perspective, um, not necessarily from what we might call a um, purely academic perspective. We allow a lot of these things, but we do not have majors generally in athletics. And so I want to put the question out there is, should the, should the role of the faculty actually take this question up? Should the coaches be faculty members? We got to that question. We got to the question of, what is the learning that is taking place in the athletic programs? Paul Hagen was asking that question three or four times earlier. Uh, we got to the question of, what are, they lear- uh, yeah, what are they learning in these programs? What about the time commitments these young people are under? Should we as a faculty be thinking about this as an educational enterprise and be developing a curriculum around it? So I'm going to leave that as a question for further
1: discussion. Thank you very much. Professor Corbett, that may be a good segue for some thoughts you might like to provide, but I'd also like your, your thoughts on how important you think intercollegiate athletics are for the mission of our, of our universities.
3: I want to say on the outset, in order to frame my remarks, and I'm going to move very quickly in, in the light of the brief time that we have to speak. Uh, I am also a former president of the National Association for Girls and Women's Sport, uh, served on the historic AIW Board of Directors, and was instrumental in writing the proposal for women's athletics at Howard University. One of the many justifications for intercollegiate sport is the perspective that athletes will have an opportunity to serve education, to secure an education, and improve their opportunities for career advancement. There are many student athletes for whom this would be true. For African American athletes in particular, securing an education and reaping the benefits of an enhanced career opportunity is very plausible. It's less plausible, less plausible. Over the past two decades, the research literature has shown that African-American athletes are not part of the academic and social mainstream on many of the predominantly white college campuses. Lower graduation rates, as you know, reflect a devaluation of the African-American athletes' educational pursuits. We are at a place in our society, unfortunately, in which race is not a comfortable topic of discussion, and this is part of the problem. It is somehow considered virtuous to ignore academic concerns related specifically to the African-American student athletes because some fear the acquisition of playing the race card. The implication is that it is not acceptable to discuss race or racial consequences as it pertains to sport. Discussions concerning the academic experiences of African-American athletes are largely ignored. Black athletes are not taken seriously as students. The expectation that the African-American students who are athletes should just perform their athletic jobs. Generally, African-American student athletes are in a state of academic crisis. They are exploited for academic economic gain. The value of the African-American athlete as a student is of little academic importance. It can be argued that this important faculty summit on intercollegiate athletics is about dignity, human rights, justice, and the honor of the academy. Faculty must be gatekeepers, representing the socially responsible conscience of the university. Higher education's best hope is to align itself with faculty-student awakening, faculty-student athlete awakening. Three strategies that could bring academic integrity to college sport are proposed. One. Discontinue the use of the concept student-athlete. Athletes should be considered a central part of a student body. We do not define debate teams as student debate team members. We do not define or refer to university choir members as student choir members, nor do we refer to the marching band members as student band members. And similarly, there is not a need to define athletes as student athletes. Whether athletes are members of the debate team, the university choir, they are simply students. Secondly, the control oversight of academic counseling and support programs for athletes should be the same for all students. The purpose of academic counseling is to focus on gaining education, not ensuring athletic eligibility. (laughs) Problems evolve when the desire to win is allowed to compromise academic success. And third and last, we've heard this statement before, transparency. Transparency in academic disclosure of students, academic majors, academic advisors, courses listed by academic major, general education requirements, electives, course GPA and instructors, will facilitate and result in accountability. Establish a public conscious, establish a a public social conscious by Board of Trustee members, faculty senate, and university administrators. This strategy would not involve certainly the the revealing of individual student grades. Academic abuses such as clustering can be significantly diminished where information on students are obtainable and readily available. Information about institutional behavior will enable universities to more effectively monitor grade inflation, educational practices, and the quality of the overall degree. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Hauser, you've had considerable experience as a faculty representative, and in the comments just made by our colleague, her second point made, made considerable, give considerable attention to this question of faculty advising and counseling. When it's working well, when, when the role of faculty advising is supportive of the mission, the academic mission of our institutions, what differentiates it from when it's not working well?
4: Well, first of all, I think a key factor here is that advising as it is done properly on a campus has to be located within and done in the same manner as academic advising is done for all students. I think that while you can find instances where there are very successful academic advising programs for athletes on certain campuses, it seems to me it has to be mainstreamed into academic advising for the university as a whole. Uh, I think that my own campus is an example of that. We have a learning assistance program which is designed to provide academic advising for all students. Our learning assistance program for student athletes is located in that center. The people who run that center report to our uh, to our provost for academic affairs. I think that's that's very, very important. If I could uh, address another matter here that I think is, is before this group and is a, is a very important matter, that's this whole idea of perception of student athletes by faculty members. It seems to me that on occasion there is a temptation to, and I think you were alluding to this point to a certain extent too, there's there's an occasion to assume that because someone is a student athlete, one is not capable of doing the same type, the same level Mm -hmm. of academic work that other students are capable of doing it. Well uh, do we assume the same thing about bassoon players? that they can't do this? Do we assume the same thing about foreign exchange students from Europe? Why Why this assumption about student athletes? I've been doing this for more than 20 years, and my, my experience is that the overwhelming majority of student athletes that I come into contact with, both in my classroom and in my role as faculty rep, are very, very capable students. They just happen to be student athletes. Uh, one of the people on our football team uh, is, is a very, very skilled student and a physics major. Well, I don't think anybody's going to question a physics major. And something else I'd like to go into too, sometimes you have people looking at the work that student athletes do and saying, are they really in an academically rigorous program or are they in a soft program? I think such arguments are very specious. If an academic institution offers a program, it hopefully is going to be a rigorous program. If an academic institution is offering programs that aren't academically rigorous, that institution has far broader difficulties to address than simply the question, are we offering soft programs for student athletes? Because those programs are available to all students on a particular campus. So I, I, I guess I'm one of those people who was inclined not to want to hear arguments that while well, student athletes take less rigorous programs as opposed to more rigorous programs. My experience is that some of our student-athletes have done exceptionally good work on my campus in areas where they're in very demanding majors, and that tends to be true, I think, of of many student-athletes. One last comment I would make. I heartily endorse the idea of faculty being involved in the governance of, of, of athletics on a particular campus. I think it's healthy. But as we saw in the survey this morning, it has to be commitment to that involvement. It has to be those who are willing to take the time to learn about intercollegiate athletics. I've been faculty rep for 21 years. I still feel I'm learning about intercollegiate athletics. One can't just dance through in one's stocking feet, so to speak, in this enterprise of athletics and come carrying a white banner and suddenly think you're going to solve all the problems. One of the things that we try to do on our campus is to involve faculty members in our Athletics Council, in subcommittees of the Athletics Council, in the accreditation process of the NCAA, which demands that faculty members really do dive in. And when they do that, I think that they are both amazed at how well student athletes do by and large, but they also become very committed to the idea of doing their very best to helping to improve the possibilities for student athletes to do really well in an academic program. And I think that at, at the bottom line, when you have that going, then in response to your question, you're going to get a very, very good
1: uh, interface with your <laughs> academic advising program. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Hughes, perhaps you could uh, take off on some of the comments that, that Alan just provided for us. You've had, con- you've, you've had experience in three different contexts. Tulane, Michigan, and now Kansas State. How would you compare and contrast the academic experience that student athletes are having in your in in your communities, and how would they how would they compare and contrast with um, the rest of the student body?
5: Well, uh, going back to Alan's and, and Doris's comments first, um, the issue one of the questions posed to the panelists was regarding this clustering issue was regarding uh, rigor and those types of things. And I couldn't agree more with Alan that there is no inherent evil in clustering of students unless the institution feels that, that this is inappropriate for all students. And whether it's theater majors taking theater, whether it's uh, the music majors taking you know excessive music classes or the Sigma News taking mostly General studies. The institution offers degree programs and majors, and if that's what is approved, or that's if that's what's sanctified for all students, then the fact that a student athlete may gravitate, or groups of student athletes gravitate, maybe based upon the class times that suit certain uh, um, that are available in that particular d- degree program, may dictate where these student athletes tend to arrive, and if it's as a group. It doesn't imply or dictate that there's an inherent evil about about that that reality. Um, the rigor part is that it all should be rigorous, and that institutions, as they design academic degree programs, do so for the health and well-being and the education of their students. If student athletes are deemed to be in something less rigorous, then the institution needs to self-examine what that degree program is designed to do, who is it designed for, and the existence of that, of that very enterprise. Um, the notion of integrity, I've been asked in the last uh, couple weeks has, you know, the academic reform of the NCAA and the, and the initial eligibility standards with a, a wider academic uh, opportunity for students to be admitted as eligible Uh, to institutions versus continuing eligibility standards, does that increase pressure on academic advisors, those practitioners who work with the athletes delivering support services, does that do those pressures of, of academic reform, the disparity between the students that are admitted versus the eligibility standards that they're required to meet as they progress the system, does that lend itself to issues of uh, academic impropriety or academic abuse uh, or lack of integrity? And my response has been at, at, at each turn that the pressure to educate students, not just in the classroom, but how to be on that campus has been the same for the past 25 years, and I'm not feeling more pressure or less pressure, but essentially, maybe different kinds of of pressure. I think the question of integrity is certainly at the forefront when you have what many educators would would report as, as rampant cheating by all students on college campuses, and the disregard for integrity and honor systems amongst the student body in general. That lends great concern to the behavior of students and the culture on a campus about what is acceptable re- regarding uh, academic achievement and, and abuses that could occur uh, therein. So the, the, the notion that academic reform, the notion that APR, the notion of pressure from coaches the pressure is the same to work with athletes and to get them to achieve at the highest level and to establish academic priority, and that they do their own work, and that continues to be, wherever I've been across the board, the greatest challenge.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Stern, uh, earlier this morning a report by the AAUP was referenced, and I know your own engagement in the work that we're discussing today regarding the integrity of intercollegiate athletics emerged from your own role as chair of the AAUP, Um, both in that context and then hearing the the findings of the faculty perceptions survey, which we reviewed earlier this morning. Where have you found the most serious concerns that have really um, drawn your attention and focus as you've been working through these questions?
6: I should say I'm the perfect example of a faculty member who is in no way a part of the sport operation. I was asthmatic as a child. Teams fought about who had to take me. I was, (laughs) this was not my metier. I was president of the American Association of University Professors in the years 1988 to 90, And during that period, uh, there were some large cause celebs, let's call them, uh, cases of scandal in athletics, in Division I athletics, et cetera, and uh, which were of great alarm. My own uh, interest in athletic reform was indeed occasioned when I heard that Bobby Knight had thrown a chair, struck a woman probably, allegedly, at Indiana University, and that there was no swift discipline taken there. That was my starting point. I felt that that was intolerable. Now I have to say, uh, very shortly after that, um, there were this governance conference that was scheduled. Uh, The COIA group began to crystallize itself. The Knight Commission came into being. Miles Brand, president of the institution, ultimately does indeed remove Bobby Knight. And Miles moves on to head the NCAA. Uh, So I was really catapulted into this because I believed that what was at stake here was indeed the reputation of the higher education enterprise. And it's that enterprise and it's that mission that I fundamentally believe in and want to protect. So I did not want to sit in a world of higher education to which I had devoted my life, and tried very hard in many ways to make it a very attractive career to people who, um, to to bright, able people. I saw it as a noble profession and I wanted it to continue to be seen that way. And I was concerned when I was seeing the way in which the potential that sport had to truly destroy this, while at the same time it's got the potential to add enormous luster to an institution. Having said that, let me just jump a little bit to what my experience as a teacher who has had um, football players in my small classes. I'm teaching classes on the performance of uh, the analysis and performance of literature. I have had over the last six or seven years, I've had um, out of 20 students, maybe I have three or four football players. I have to tell you, I have been wowed by the talent I have seen in my small class from my football players. They have had extraordinary literary sensibility They've uh, they perform when I said when I asked the class how many of them have any performance experience etc. My football players do not immediately identify themselves as performers. You know I'll have to sort of say to them, goodness me, here let's just hear you know from my football players because if anyone is a consummate performer uh, in a bodily sport, uh, you are it. Uh, These students have done extraordinary performances of poems by Emily Dickinson, of short stories by Toni Morrison, you name it. And the students have got, of course, if you put an athlete up there with a literary text in front of a class, uh, the showmanship potential in that uh, and the competitive instinct is colossal. And the, the gain that you get back from that is just extraordinary. Now, I have to say, we had had a football player whose major was theater, Darnell Autry. And I'm sure he became influential in recruiting and so on. But nothing could be more misguided than to believe that the athlete who wants to make it academically can't do so. And I also have to say, these athletes over these years have always been able to bend their schedule, their football schedule, their rehearsals, to meet the demands of the class. In our case, we ask these students to come on the second night of the quarter um, to an evening performance where work from the prior quarter is shared. Initially, some of these football players said that they couldn't do this, that they had to do their practice. I said, nonsense, just go and talk to your coach. You know, there's ways we've got a five-hour stretch of time, one night and three the next night. Uh, Figure it out. And they did, and they come. And as a number of you have pointed out, uh, no one is better at following adult instruction uh, than an athlete. They're damn good at it. So I'm I'm sort of – I have high confidence in – the athlete. I agree totally with the sentiment that says we shouldn't be calling them student athletes. Now, I want to talk about the role of faculty, regular faculty, non-sport connected faculty in this enterprise as a very necessary um, element in the delicate balance that I think can keep sport honest or more honest in the academy. If we can insert, inject the faculty member into the governance structure, interrelating with the, the coaches, the director of athletics, with the entire machinery, demanding reports from the president of the institution or from the director of athletics to the faculty senate to keep us abreast, us being faculty members of the developments in sport. It is all to the better. We did indeed, the COIA initiative has been, you know, a slow one. They formulated a resolution on, quote, unquote, the arms race. I'm sure my institution at Northwestern University was a bit unnerved when I suggested that our Senate ought to take the lead and that we as a faculty ought to indeed vote on this resolution that was being advanced by COIA, which asked for greater accountability from from institutions on the question. I mean, the motion was really to stay and slow down, quote, unquote, the arms race this past at Northwestern University. You can get this discussion going. You can get reporting taking place. I've seen many, they're modest steps, uh, but across the last decade, I have seen many salutary steps being taken at many different kinds of institutions to in fact bring about more effective and greater accountability in the academic, in the athletic establishment within the academy.
1: Thank you very much. Now open it up. Uh, to our panelists but first let me ask members of the commission if they would like to launch
7: our questions in any way. Len, Len Elmore. Uh, first of all <clears throat> I appreciate the comments of the panel particularly when it comes to the idea of accountability on the part of students. I, I really didn't hear that in, in the first panel and the point that, that I would like to um, to at least comment on is that, you know, instead of us continually developing excuses, to me, it's all about taking charge of your education. And if there's anything that we need to be doing as faculty, as those of us who are on uh, maybe the direct line with regard to intercollegiate athletics and even those on the periphery, we've got to start encouraging these young people to start taking control of their education. I have a 17-year-old who's in school, and that's what's expected of him in his high school. Now, granted, a lot of these young people, uh, particularly young men of color, don't come from schools that encourage that, but they still have been able to negotiate their careers. They've taken charge of their athletic careers. And that same talent, that same skill, should allow them, if we place education as a priority, to take advantage and to take charge of their educations there. We just don't encourage it enough. Now, the reason that I wanted to make this comment because I, I once wrote an article that's in sports uh, sports business journal about the 19-year rule in basketball. And you know, I kind of complimented it simply because it exposed people who might not otherwise want to go to college, exposed them to what education was about, placed a priority on education with the hope that despite going on to make whatever money you make in the professional ranks, you all of a sudden now recognize that maybe there is also something else. You know, that's, that's the spark that hit me. But in the end, I had a response written by an administrator from Ohio University saying, well, the 19-year-old rule puts pressure on faculty to the point where they might commit academic fraud. Can you believe that?
8: I could believe it. <laughs> uh, but, but the
7: idea is, again, instead of recognizing this for what it is, they're saying that this puts pressure on them to either cheat, to give grades, to steer into these, these classes. And, and my response to him, um, on, on a personal note, was that, you know, why are you in this business? But in the end, I, I just wanted to make that comment and to applaud each of you for... Uh, Again, stating the A word, accountability, because that's really what this is all about, both on the side of of the student, as well as on the side of faculty. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Any comments from the, okay.
1: Val, Val Ackerman, member of the Knight Commission.
8: Uh, Jack, I have first a couple of comments and then a question that I'll direct to one of the panelists. Much of what you said resonated with me for a lot of reasons, one of which is that I was a student athlete myself. I attended the University of Virginia. I was a women's basketball player back at a time when it was not a top-tier sport. Um, It was sort of post-Title IX, but things really hadn't kicked in in terms of the resources that were available, the scholarship money, and so forth. Um, You know, I had an interest in a science area originally as a major, but in the end, I scrapped it. And part of the reason I scrapped it was that I couldn't manage it from a schedule standpoint. I really gravitated to another major simply because that was most conducive to my, my basketball obligations, which involved afternoon practices, often mid-afternoon, I couldn't do the labs. So the whole notion that, that athletes do have other pressures that bear on them in terms of how they manage their time and, um, and what, you know, what they can fit into a busy schedule ends up affecting what their academic course is. I have no regrets about the course I chose, but it, but it really does matter, and I'm sure now fast forwarding 25 years later with the increasing demands on sports like women's basketball and so many other sports, it's as important as ever. The second comment is that um, I do think faculty, non-sports related faculty involvement is very important. I, I remember again at Virginia, um, it, was, it was with great pleasure that I sought out the council of, of non-athletic adults. I mean, you know, you, you get so much pressure as a student from your coach, and you're so surrounded and immersed in, in the athletic world that you actually do seek out uh, others. And so it was, I had a particularly close relationship with the dean of student affairs there, who was very instrumental. So I, I just, I think, I, speaking, I guess, from the perspective of a former student student, Who happen to play uh, athletics? uh, I think the role of non-athletic faculty is particularly important and very welcome, maybe more welcome than anybody knows, as it relates to the students themselves and what their needs are. My question for Mr. Mr. Becker relates to your comments about a a potential for a major in athletics, and I guess um, Nick and I both sort of reacted to it. We were intrigued by it. I guess I was wondering if you could vet that out a bit. I, you know, obviously many schools offer. Uh, physical education majors, maybe in connection with a, cu- a teaching curriculum, uh, a major that would suit one to go on and teach phys ed or potentially to coach. But I guess I was intrigued to hear what you had in mind on the whole subject of a, of a of a major in athletics. What that would mean, what components would be, how you think that would best serve. Maybe not necessarily. You know, would a, would a non-athlete be eligible or have an interest in that major? What is your what was your thinking behind that?
2: My thinking, actually. Um, builds on many of the comments that you heard from other folks. First and foremost, the curriculum resides with the faculty. So if there's going to be a major, it's going to be rigorous. It's going to go through the faculty senate, at least my university, the faculty senate votes on everything in courses and curriculums, individual courses as well as curriculum. Uh, I think what I intended was to get the conversation started. Uh, The conversation has, you know, this question was raised as I alluded to in the New York Times a few years ago. And you can major in performance in other areas, as I mentioned, dance, music, others. You know, there are a lot of students who um, come to the university and they may have a passion for dance or music, major in something else. And I, and I don't believe for a second that if we had an athletic performance major, uh, that it would be a dumping ground or a clustering ground at all, because it would be rigorous. And there are only certain students, they're gonna look at what can I do with that major. All students ask this question. Uh, so, my primary goal is, is to actually get to um, what uh, Professor Corbett said, stop drawing the line between the student and the athlete and let's, let's have the conversation about whether athletics is part of the educational experience. And it's back to um, the comments that Paul Hagen was making this morning uh, about uh, the learning that takes place. Okay, in that environment, and actually, um, Len Elmore, I think, related to some of this, too, about taking responsibility. One of the things you find, it, at least in the athletic programs I've been able to observe closely, is one of the, in these programs, they start working with these young people very early on for taking responsibility. Uh, because, particularly in a high-profile program where that student athlete may end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated, it's going to be in the newspaper a lot. Um, it's very important that that person um, who may have grown up in a small rural town, all of a sudden is going to be in the limelight. And so the athletic department starts working with those people um, very carefully and very early on and trying to help them develop and develop a sense of responsibility and maturity. So in terms of an athletic performance major, I don't have it designed. Um, I think it's it would be worth having the conversation. Uh, for example, and this was raised in the New York Times article that was written a few years ago, is the reason we don't have this conversation, is it because of race? Is it uh, that performance is okay uh, in other areas that have a certain um, cultural fit, but in um, football, basketball, it's viewed as being outside of um, some people's comfort zone? I think that question needs to be brought on the table and discussed. I think the question about what would be in a major of athletic performance is the question, and I think it's a question that needs to be discussed by the people responsible for the curriculum, that's the faculty. But that also then raises the question, should the coaches be appointed to the faculty? You heard in the earlier session that supposedly Joe Paterno holds a faculty appointment. I think it's an interesting question to discuss. You know, Are the coaches actually educators? Um, if you go back and listen to people um, talk about the, le- uh, the legend of Bear O'Brien and his role in, as an educator with the people that played for him, you know, I never met Bear Bryan, I don't know him, but I do know the legend. And many coaches um, have that reputation as being educators above and beyond just coaching you and being, playing your position well. Um, so I think it's a conversation that needs to be started, but I, I haven't designed it.
1: The gentleman in the third row, second.
9: Good morning. I'm Linda Jones from Howard University. I'm a grad student in Media Studies. And I see an inherent um, contradiction when you consider the NCAA rules. For instance, an an athlete who finds himself in a win or herself in a win-win situation where she chooses a university that has a strong sports program, but also through um, her research, she found a strong academic department for instance, history, where the department has um, sort of um, used um, a couple of renowned scholars to really build up their history department. Okay, so the student signs a letter of intent to play sports, but um, after the student, you know, starts in the program, the, somehow the, the faculty members in the, in the history department decide to go to another university. So we have a student now who's tied into um, this un- tied to this university, but the student's passion was also history. But because of the NCAA rules, the student cannot leave this um, university and go to another one with, uh, and play. They would have to, he or she would have to sit out two years. So I see the problem because if we're saying these students are seeking or pursuing an academic program but they're tied to these NCAA rules, I mean, has this presented itself? Has this been a problem with the universities where a student really wanted to pursue a program, and the program is no longer what it should be, but they're tied to the university because of their commitment with the athletic department?
1: Let me ask my colleagues if any of you've had an experience like, like the one described at any of your institutions.
5: Every day, it's uh, a f- its just a feature of the landscape when you have an athletic scholarship, you also as an individual have a career in athletics. You have a passion for it. You've been doing this for for sometimes when you enter college for eight to 12 years. And so you have this, your identity is wrapped up in your sport and you arrive on a campus and whether it's the practice times or the energy and time commitments necessary, athletes are precluded from a number of majors about which they may have the most or highest interest and that is something we wrestle with all the time especially that the individual who starts down one track who then decides it's not history I would like to major in architecture and when you make those those movements between majors it is it's a restrictive environment because the goal for progress towards graduation has become so paramount in our legislation academically, it's something we wrestle with and have to uh, counsel students on, on a regular basis. And how do you adapt and what kind of fit can you find? uh, The the issue of transferring to follow your coach or to follow those history professors or what have you. The very nature of the academic uh, reform academic progress rate data has a lot of universities who will decline to issue a release for that student who is then penalized. And that's because that student athlete now represents a point. And so we are managing points rather than managing students. And that, that uh, does create some interesting um, interesting
10: situations. Gentleman right, right in the. Uh, my name's Alan Sack and I'm one of the founding members of the Drake Group. I um, have all kinds of questions. One thing, I look up here and I see the Knight Commission logos right in back of you. Not, not long ago than 2001, the Knight Commission itself came out and said that big time college sports, commercialized college sports was swamping, literally swamping academic values. Have we, has this reversed in the last you know, eight years? I don't think so. It still swamps academic values. And what has been the release valve for that? We have incredible pressure on the athletes. No one's—I'm not blaming athletes. I don't think the athletes are the problem here. I think we have pr- problems coming from the NCAA. My friend Wally Winfrey back here. I think the NCAA, and I think that the corporations, and I think that the colleges and universities are creating incredible pressures on the athletes. Incredible pressures. So, so they're looking for a way that they can get through this pressure. I think that the faculty have, became, have become the, the release valve for that pressure, and I think we have. I think we've abdicated our responsibility to be the defenders of the curriculum. And three of of the members of this panel just now said we are the defenders of of the curriculum. We are the watch people of the curriculum. I think the major problem is that we have simply stepped away from doing that job adequately. We are responsible for the gut courses. We're responsible for the soft majors. We are responsible for the grade inflation. There's no grade inflation among those big time college athletes and uh, and their coaches. You have to be perfect, you have to be good, or you're out of there. The great inflation is on our part, the faculty. We have rolled over. I cannot believe I've been here for about two and a half hours, not once have we looked at the real problem. The problem's us. This is, in fact, a family feud among the faculty. We can't influence what happens in the NCAA. We can't influence anything outside of our own little classrooms. If we took charge of our own classrooms, if we had the same kind of professional dedication that coaches have, coaches, if we had the same dedication that coaches have to their disciplines and to what they do for a living as faculty, if we had the same kind of dedication to education and to academic professionalism, I don't think half the problems that we have today would really exist. So I would love to see conversation about faculty in terms of the fraud that we ourselves are, in fact, involved with. That it's, we keep on trying to push this off in another another direction, I'd like to have you comment on, our faculty involved in academic fraud? Not the athletes. We're, I think we're involved in it, and I think that we're cheating the athletes out of their edu- education because we are letting up in that way. I'd like to hear someone comment on that.
4: If I could make a comment on that, <clears throat> it seems to me that if, in fact, what you're saying is true, and I, I get a little nervous because you're using some pretty, pretty broad accusations here, but um, if, if, in fact, it's true that that is the case, it is not a problem that's indigenous at all to athletics. It's a problem that's indigenous to the institution of the university and the college as an institution if in fact there are weak programs the institution needs to address the weak programs Uh, yes you may have some student athletes if we have weak programs who go into them I guarantee you've got an awful lot of other students who have nothing to do with athletics that are going into those same programs and if that indeed is the case that's where the energy energy is gonna have to be focused Uh, it's the pot calling the kettle black it would seem to me if anyone were to say well those student athletes shouldn't be going into those soft programs. There's a lot of other students who are gonna go into them, too. I, have one thing. Uh, Doris, I think you, your
10: third recommendation is the best recommendation I've heard all morning. That is disclosure. We should be talking about disclosure. We're just kind of, like you, like you said, it may not be true. What I'm saying may be totally off the wall. But if we wanna find out if this fraud exists, we have to have disclosure. And I would call for a congressional in- investigation into this through the House Ways and Means Committee, maybe the, the Senate Finance Committee and look at the tax-exempt function of of intercollegiate athletics. And in fact, for them to continue being tax-exempt, prove to us that faculty and programs are working to the benefit of athletes. I'm not so sure they are, but I think we should look at it. Disclosure's one approach to that. I think it could go very, very far.
1: Okay, uh, let me ask Doris if she'd like to offer a comment, and then... Uh,
3: Thank you for supporting that recommendation because I do feel strongly that transparency is critical to resolve in addressing many of the concerns that we've been talking about in the last few hours and we've acknowledged for a long time, we have to begin to deal with some of the perceptions regarding the ills inherent in athletics. We can not only talk about these ills and these perceptions. We have to determine the realities of these perceptions. And then with this transparency of our programs, we can clearly look and determine what exactly is happening to our athletes. It's critical that we know what courses students are taking. It's critical that we know what our instructors are doing in the academy. We would do not like to acknowledge that some of these problems exist. It's so much easier to talk about all of the wonderful things that we do. And we do do a lot of wonderful things in the academy, but we also do not stand tall and address the problems in the academy around the question of students graduating, students really earning degrees in a reasonable amount of time. Those are not wonderful topics of conversation over the dinner table. But they are real questions that we have not Addressed in the manner that we should in higher education.
2: Mark, well, you know, you called for a congressional um, inquiry or whatever for the fraud, as you say it. But on these issues about graduation rates and what do students learn, there actually has been a federal effort. The Spellings Commission came out with a set of recommendations. University associations are responding to those about what are the learning, what 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 is the value of an education. But it's above and beyond athletics. Is what is the value of a college education? These questions are being asked. Universities are at, um, in a position where they are having to respond to that. Uh, but I think you know the question. Part of your statement comes back to is, uh, do the faculty really want people looking under the hood at what's going on in the general educational enterprise? And, and you know, I, I think you're saying perhaps not. But I think uh, what we're finding at at the federal level certainly. Um, Presidents and provosts are finding we have to answer these questions. The, the, the accountability for education is being demanded out there at the national level, and I think athletics will be part of it. There's going to be greater transparency.
1: Mike Adams, University of Georgia, and member of the Knight Commission. Yeah. I want
11: to comment just on one bit. I could talk a long time, which I won't. Uh, the gentleman with the, the Drake Group, uh, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm also currently chair of the executive committee of the NCAA. And, and I don't want to leave unchallenged the notion that the faculty, or faculty in general, were not involved in the development of the APR and the GSR process. I agree with Professor Corbett, there's much yet that can be done. But I, I can assure you, we, we heard from curriculum experts, from testing experts, from, from measurement <coughs> experts, uh, this, was, this was a program that was developed, frankly, to help protect the academic process, and uh, for for instance, in baseball, where there were no residency requirements until uh, just this year, after the committee reported, uh, the the summer leagues were were a were a virtual uh, meat market, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, and and so many many of the rules that have been put in place to make transfer more difficult in essence, are protections for student athletes, not necessarily uh, hurdles. And there is an appeal process that I think the NCAA, without overly defending, has become under uh, Dr. Brand, uh, much more amenable to looking at the individual student's uh, situation. But the, the current APR and GSR process was developed over a several year period. We're now in the fourth year where the first real meaningful penalties will be applied to schools that are not doing well on either retaining or graduating students. And we've said, after we have that four-year period, that we're open to suggestions on how the system may yet need to be tweaked. But the notion that there was not substantial faculty involvement in the development of that program is just clearly erroneous.
1: Thanks, Mike.
4: Yeah. If I could respond to both of the, the previous comments, it seems to me it, it, it's Dangerous, Im- immensely dangerous to say we need to call on Congress to do something about this. I find it hard, and I realize I'm in Washington, D.C., saying this, but I find it hard to find a great deal that Congress has done well in the last 10 years. Uh, I think we need to look at ourselves. If we see that there are problems, I think we need to deal with those problems. I, th- I think you've pointed out very well that the NCAA is making attempts as best it can, and I was part of the group that developed these academic standards, doing our best to try to ensure that, in fact, student athletes are student athletes. But I think on our individual campuses, within our, ac- our athletic conferences, we need to make attempts to ensure that what is being done is, in fact, the proper thing, that we are taking the right steps. Uh, I think it's a very, very bad mistake to throw this off onto some other group and say, "Here, you solve the problems that we have failed to address." We need to address our own problems. We need to clean up our own house
1: if we have a problem. Thank you. Woman, woman, right here. Yes. If you just wait for the microphone.
12: Thank you. My name is Ellen Starowski. I'm at Ithaca College, um, and uh, I really wanted to return to the questions that are um, on the sheet. Um, And and especially in light of um, a dynamic that I think some of us know exists at one level or another. Um, I'm a professor and chair of our graduate program in sport management now, but in a previous life I started out as a college coach and then became a director of athletics. Um, And uh, this notion of students clustering um, and gravitating towards certain majors Um, We all know, having worked with young people for a long time, that they do, in fact, um, have their own uh, network of advisors in terms of what courses they're going to take and how they're going to um, lay out their academic plans. Um, At the same time, though, I think there is a distinction between students talking among themselves versus officials within the university um, making recommendations as to which direction they go and which direction they don't go. Um, And there are coaches out there who will encourage athletes to go in a certain direction versus another. And Val Ackerman's comments confirm the fact that athletes confront those kinds of conflicts. So if we recognize the fact that that is a reality, that there are forces that affect the decisions that athletes make that are different than just networking among themselves in terms of where they gravitate in terms of courses. And if in fact the NCAA is committed, as, as I know the significant steps have been made in terms of monitoring academic performance, then, um, then why not begin um, uh, data gathering in terms of um, the question of whether or not athletes are tracked into courses, whether or not clustering is going on. Because in the absence of data, we don't know the answer. In the absence of disclosure, we don't know what's going on. And so the question becomes, are we ignoring the question because we don't want to know, or, um, or are we not persuaded that there is a necessity to do so? Um, and I would just like your reactions to that. Hopefully, it wasn't too long.
1: Sure. Go ahead, Phil.
5: Well, I would love if every student athlete across the country got his or her advising from academic advisors in the major, from the faculty, in their college. And I believe that that is what should happen. I view my role as one of an academic counselor who is auxiliary or supplemental to the advice they receive from their degree program from their faculty advisors etc athletic departments don't grant degrees we should not be the first ones dispensing advice and most importantly coaches should be removed from from any part of that equation and yet sometimes how do you do that how do you how do you get the advisors out of the locker room and 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 onto campus or you know in the philosophy department in you know german literature what have you that you you just that would be a fundamental premise uh, and maybe a, a, a charge that, that Drake or Coya or Farah can take up and say this this would be a recommendation this would be a, a, um, a litmus test for fair equitable treatment and, and information disclosure to the student. Whether you, you know I think transparency is great I think. You know, faculty groups on each individual institution. If they have a concern, they can certainly requisition grades, enrollment figures, who's where, and I would encourage any institution that has those concerns to absolutely do that and share it amongst their obviously their faculty of that institution, but share it <laughs> amongst their conferences, share it with their national organizations. Um, I we really get to that that point. I want to go back to. It's, uh, it's whether or not clustering occurs, I would say if you ask practitioners, the trench workers with the student athletes in support services, they will say, it, yes, it does happen, and here is why it happens. Now, if there's grade inflation in a particular course, that certainly needs to be asked by the oversight committees of, of faculty of programs of academic support. Go do that, absolutely go do that. Clustering in and of itself, is it inherently wrong, damaging to the student, evil? Carol, would you Can like I'd to say, add anything?
6: Uh, well, I just want to say something about accountability for a moment. Uh, earlier this morning, someone pointed out that the agenda before us in the night Commission you know, is so large, there's a way in which we could just sort of talk endlessly and not produce result. We are actually at a stage um, with the NCAA, um, and it's ability to levy sanctions, as you've just pointed out, you know, we're sort of four years in, and I'm sure that the skeptic in in our publics who are wondering about the, uh, the honesty of the sport, et cetera, in the academy, they are puzzled that there's so much noise in the system about scandal, and yet the sanctions have been so slight or... I mean, not non-existent, but very slight indeed. And so I do think uh, kind of a moment of truth is about minimum test scores for eligibility. If the NCAA does not, in fact, discipline, suspend, if not um, deny uh, some schools the right to play, I, I believe that, that they will confirm <laughs> the doubters' belief that this situation is not open enough. To the call for quote-unquote utter transparency, you trample on so many values of an institution when you call for utter transparency, especially when you identify only one group whose behaviors you want to have made, put utterly in sunlight. And I just think that this is, I won't go on my hobby horse here, but the issue is very complicated. It isn't as simple as uh, that we just simply have to put the light in the room and we would see all the patterns with the clustering. We would see all these, um, you know, sort of dire predictions verified. I think we have to be sensitive to what the values are of the academic culture and certainly what the rights are of the professoriate and of the students.
1: If you could just wait for the microphone. This gentleman right here.
13: Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Marshall Banks. I'm from Howard University. And one question that I have, and I did not see it in the report itself, is this issue Uh, in Washington. I'm from Howard. So the Post has carried several articles. On Sunday before last, there was a major article in reference to a student at Cardoza High School who graduated with a four-point GPA. She goes to college, she struggles her freshman year, finally drops out because she felt she really wasn't academic, didn't have the academic preparation to stay in college. Uh, Melinda Gates wrote an op-ed piece in the Post last week in reference to the idea of we have 1.1 million high school students who drop out they drop out simply because they are not academically successful. And we find that most students stay in school only because they're academically successful, not because of athletics or the drama club or speech club. And I did not see this in the report and I just wanted to make sure we got it on the table and would like the panel to react to it. Um, We haven't addressed this issue from the transition program from high school to college. There has to be some means to make sure that our student, athletes, are, our students are transferring with the academic preparation. If not, we have to go back to our study halls, or some means has to be established, so we will make sure that the success is. Uh, you know, we've looked at test scores. I was a part of the Macintosh Commission report back in the mid '90s, and out of this report, we were looking at this idea, look, we need transition, and it's extremely important. Not only uh, we have a freshman seminar course at, at Howard, and it's designed primarily to help them make this transition to the university. Now, hopefully, we don't allow them to drop out along the way. So from that point, could you address this issue, high school to college
2: transition?
1: Any member of the panel? Mark?
2: Certainly. Um, you know, one of the things we do at the University of South Carolina, and I don't think it's atypical, if uh, in the case of um, student athletes, Uh, prospective student athletes who um, have signed an NLI or are being considered for admission to the university, if upon the examination of the record suggests that transition is going to be difficult, one of the things we do is require attendance in the summer before the beginning of the normal matriculation for the fall semester. And of course, in that process, there's a lot of testing, trying to figure out exactly what help these students are going to need. Uh, By and large, I think almost all of them, um, one of the courses they take in the summer session is a transition to college course. Uh, it's a program called University 101 at our institution, U.S. News and World Report ranks it every year in its annual publication, one of the programs to look for when you look at a university. It's sort of a how to be successful in college course. We have it for everybody. A majority of our students take it. And we encourage students who are going to have difficulties to transition in particular to take it. And for some of the student athletes in particular, we require that they come in the summer and encourage them to do that so that the transition is smoother. So there, there are things that we work with uh, to try to work in this process. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Alan. I would agree with what Mark has said, but I'd like to add something to that. When you have somebody who's a wide-eyed 18-year-old coming on campus, uh, there are few people, if that person is a student athlete, who are gonna have as much impact on what that young person does their first semester, in terms of decisions of courses they take, as is the coach of the team that they come in with. And I think that's why it is so important that we need to have involvement of faculty, of staff, of student governance, of various constituencies throughout the university in the process whereby coaches are screened and hired. If you have a coach who wants to buzz off academics, chances are that student athlete if they're not a very highly qualified student-athlete who's going to have real problems academically. If you have a coach who does what the coach at Georgetown did and sits that student-athlete down from the get-go and says, look, this is critical. You've got to be involved. You've got to have a good first semester. You have to make good decisions here. Uh, If you want to have good ranking with me, you're going to have to go to class. You're going to have to do your homework. You're going to have to keep up with things. If the coach does that, I know of no other single means I can think of that's going to have more of a positive impact. And I think that what you do in academic advising, what, what all of us do with freshman seminars, those are very, very good things to coordinate with that, but for a student athlete coming in, if you don't have a coach who's supportive of academics, you're going to have a serious problem with the marginal student. Phil, and then Mark.
5: Marshall, I'd like to just say that it seems like the 2,000-pound question, the elephant in the room is, what can faculty do and there's a lot of discussion about how we start at the top and what are we gonna do with salaries and facilities and FAR's being tenured faculty and all of those, those issues. I would recommend that faculty look at capturing intercollegiate athletics by starting with the student and those transition issues. Faculty taking charge of orientation programs maybe specialized for the athlete, but certainly, uh, take charge of first year experience kinds of things and put faculty in proximity to to the athlete throughout that first and second semester on campus because faculty are the best, best individuals to train the student athlete how to be in college. And to Len's point regarding who's gonna teach these individuals responsibility and accountability because many elite athletes arrive at our institutions without that component. We can't insert the microchip behind their ear, we've tried. So, along with training the athlete from from the faculty and with proximity, why don't faculty then seize the day and credential service providers, coaches, myself, in, 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 in how to work with students, how to motivate them, issues of ethics and, 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 and integrity and, and personal development, student development. Why don't the faculty make the requisite training programs required of those that interact with the student athlete? Seize, seize intercollegiate athletics from the ground up. Mark? do you want to build on what
2: Alan said, the role of the coach, but actually um, connected um, Phil's comment. One of the things the faculty can do, if they haven't done it at your university, is ask the athletic director or the coaches what is the penalty for not going to class? What is the penalty for not doing it? Every university should have a class attendance policy um, in the athletic department for for their student athletes. And the coach who doesn't take away playing time, if you're not making the commitment in the classroom, is not going to get the follow through. It's only they're only going to be words. The, the most powerful thing that the coach can do is connect the academic and the athletic, and that is you have to make your commitment here to the entire institution to your academic program if you want PT, as they call it, if you want playing time. And if you don't go to class, you're not going to get playing time. And um, I think. Many of our universities have this. I think you need, to, you need to ask the question if your university isn't talked about this.
1: We have time for one last question. There's a very patient gentleman who has now got the microphone and I turn it over to our colleague. Thank you. Um, my name is Fritz Polite from the University of Tennessee
14: and the Institute for Leadership, Ethics, and Diversity in Sport. I'd like to leave this on a good note and this is a case study. This is a true case study. My, my son was recruited by quite a few uh, of the schools that are up on that podium. And I was a very good student in high school, and he opted to go to School X. While at School X, I contacted the head coach as well as his position coach to let them know who I was, what I do, and my value systems, and things that I was looking for in terms of my son's personal development. And I continued to monitor that progress the entire time he was there. Halfway through, um, I found out that he was majoring in an area that, you know, I just I didn't think that that was something I wanted him to major in. So I cut him off. I gave him no more money. Um, my, my daughter, my, my ex wife, went to law school, Georgetown Law, and she graduated from Iowa State and is going to law school. I have a background in business and I wanted him to go into business. And he said, Dad, I do what I want to do. I said, All right, I cut you off. So once he was broke for a while, he came back and he changed his major to what I wanted it to be. And you know it's something he bought into, but he was being directed and steered and influenced by a lot of people, not just the advisors, not just the players on his team, but faculty members, coaches. At the end of the day, he graduated a degree in marketing. My son just last week was promoted. He's a regional supervisor of an investment firm in the Midwest. He supervises 25 people, was the youngest supervisor in the history of the company. And that degree really helped him tremendously. Not only the fact that he was a former athlete, that helped a lot, but the fact that he had a very good degree and a very solid discipline. Now, he was no Rhodes Scholar. Let's get that straight now. He wasn't a Rhodes Scholar by any means. He didn't have the highest of GPAs. But I think it said a lot about him that the fact that he finished in a degree that really the curriculum and the discipline is a very challenging one. So the thing that I think helped him a lot lot was he had not only a faculty member, but I'm his father. And some kids don't have that direction. And so they're influenced to do and take things that at the end of the day, you know, how is this gonna benefit you for the next 25 years of your life?
1: Thank you very much. Really appreciate your contribution. And I wanna express my gratitude to the members of our panel for being with us today. And look forward to continuing with all of you. Look forward to continuing with all of you after lunch.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.